And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Back in 2015, some friends and I decided to make a visit to the Ben Ezra Synagogue. It's one of the oldest surviving Jewish temples in Egypt. This is producer Nadine Sheker. We took a taxi to Old Cairo and walked through the winding alleys of an area called Fustat, down to what looked like a modest, unassuming church. A bronze plaque at the door read, Property of the Jewish Community in Cairo. And right below it, there was the Star of David. When we stepped inside, we were the only people there. It wasn't really a big place, but it had this feel of a sanctuary. It emitted almost a golden reddish glow when you walked in and had these like really big marble columns that led up to a beautiful wooden altar. The ceilings, when you looked up, were decorated in traditional patterns and hanging lanterns. It felt like it all been handcrafted. But we really weren't there to marvel at the beauty of the synagogue's architecture. We were actually looking for what was behind its walls, the Geniza. The word Geniza comes from the Jewish expression Beit Geniza, which means storage chamber for texts that were no longer used. As it also is in Islam, it's considered haram or forbidden to throw away something that might contain the name of God. So for a thousand years, the Jewish community of Old Cairo had kept all kinds of things in a chamber inside this synagogue. Religious books, handwritten notes, marriage contracts, love letters, children's drawings, all inside the Geniza of the Ben Ezra synagogue. And basically, all of this was left to be buried the same way you would bury a person. At the time, my friends and I were reading about the Cairo Geniza in college, this hidden chamber that held the ancient documents and writings of Egypt's Jews, most if not all of whom have left Egypt. It had all the elements of mystery and awe, and we just felt like it was hard to pass up on the opportunity to try and go and see it in person. In the particular case of the Cairo Geniza, it had been a topic of some controversy, conflicted identity and strange transatlantic dealings that drew Nadine even further into the story. On the second floor of the synagogue, if you look up and a little bit to the left, you end up looking at an opening in the wall. It was the Geniza. And I didn't know it at the time, but this opening, this hole in the wall, had been there since the moment the Geniza was discovered. When we talk about the Cairo Geniza today, we're mostly talking about the discovery made by Dr. Solomon Schechter, who was a um, scholar in Cambridge at the end of the 19th century. This is Ben Althwaite, the head of the Geniza Research Unit at Cambridge University Library, where the Cairo Geniza collections are held. We'll get to how they got there later. Anyway, Ben told me the story of how this German scholar, Solomon Schechter, discovered the Cairo Geniza. And he had discovered that there were important manuscripts being sold by book dealers in Egypt and also in Palestine. This was and in 1896 or 97. Dr. Solomon at the time was a scholar at Cambridge University in Talmudics, the study of sacred texts in Judaism. And he tracked down that these manuscripts were coming from a very old synagogue, uh, called the Ben Ezra Synagogue, which was in Old Cairo, in, in Coptic Cairo. And in 1897, he took a trip to Egypt and he was shown a hole in the wall and uh, invited by the chief rabbi really to jump through the hole, which he did. 
and he landed in a room that was two stories high and it was just full of bits of old paper and parchment and even a few bits of papyrus and leather and things like that. He jumped down on top of what turned out to be a thousand years of Jewish culture in Egypt. The Geneza was located on the second floor or the mezzanine of the Ben Ezra synagogue. It was around two by two meters and about five meters deep. Like Ben mentioned, you would actually need to jump into a hole to be able to get down to the manuscripts. Schechter went in through an opening in the wall and later wrote a letter to his wife saying he was covered in Gneza schmutz, or dirt, and was rumored to have harmed his lungs doing so. Schechter ended up taking a bunch of those manuscripts back to Cambridge in the UK. Nearly half of the ones that he found, actually, of the entire Geniza's collection. So close to 193,000 fragments of an entire 400,000-piece collection. It ended up becoming what's now known as the Taylor Schechter Collection in Cambridge, which is by far considered the largest collection of the Cairo Geniza manuscripts. There is this photo of Schechter around 1898 with everything he'd found in the Geniza. He slouched in a chair in the corner with this wild beard and gray suit, and around him are just heaps of boxes and documents scattered everywhere. They take up the entire room. Schechter became widely celebrated and credited as the discoverer of the Cairo Geniza. As I was researching the story about the Cairo Geniza, I thought I would most likely focus on Schechter, on this amazing discovery in a hole in the synagogue that seemed forgotten in my city of Cairo. But then I came across a manuscript collection titled the Jack Musiri Collection on the Cambridge Library website. And on that page, he, Jack Musiri, was cited as being a discoverer of the Cairo Geniza. And this is where our story begins. My name is Anne Maseri Marlio, and I am Jack Maseri's only granddaughter. Jack was born to a family of bankers in Egypt, in Cairo. He was very interested in Jewish culture and in archaeology, and went around areas and was always helping out other people financially to the point that he was asked to please not go to the bank because most probably he would be giving credits to people who were not necessarily able to reimburse them on. Jack Musiri, Anne's grandfather, belonged to a wealthy Jewish-Egyptian family, the Musiris. Their family tree goes back to Nassim Musiri, the family's patriarch, who migrated to Egypt most probably from Spain or Italy in the 1750s. The Musiris were a banking family. At one point early last century, they owned two banks in Cairo and companies that loaned big money to build hotels across Egypt and in Jerusalem. I believe was an adventurous fellow and was not really preoccupied with the family business. He had other things, and as I said before, I think that his family realized that and said it's probably best for you to go and do something else rather than this because his priorities lay elsewhere. One of his priorities would be in education. So in the early 1900s, he set up a schooling system for Jewish community schools, which was part of a larger effort to overhaul the Jewish education system in the Middle East and throughout the world. The schools taught a modern blend of Jewish religious and secular education and became so successful around the country that even non-Jewish kids attended. 
His interest in Jewish education led him down a rabbit hole of so many other interests. And one of the other things he was so intent on doing was to create a Jewish library and museum of sorts that would exhibit the treasures of Jewish heritage found in Egypt. He started collecting artifacts and fixtures from Egyptian synagogues, spits of the furniture, and was hoping to add ancient Jewish manuscripts to his collection. One of his initiatives that failed was to write to the many institutions in Europe and in America that held these manuscripts to ask them for at least to send uh, facsimile copies so that the Jewish communities could have copies and could display and teach and show with pride what, what once was there. This is Rebecca Jefferson, the curator of the Price Library of Judaica at the University of Florida. She's also writing a book that includes the series. Sadly, it seems to have, well, it did, it failed. Um, he didn't even get a response from the sound of things. It's hard to tell if this museum slash library was ever built, but Rebecca says some semblance of it existed. It seems in this effort to retrieve Jewish manuscripts to bring them back to communities in the Middle East and North Africa, Jack began resenting those Western scholars and institutions who seemed to have taken what he considered to be his heritage from his homeland. The first thing I came across was um, an article um, that Mosseri had written himself um, talking about his activities in Cairo with the Cairo Jewish community and, of course, um, his engagement with the Cairo Geniza. And that was enlightening because he really expressed something I hadn't read before and that was the fact that the Cairo community was now regretting uh, letting these uh, manuscripts leave leave Cairo, leave Egypt. And he was disappointed by this because he saw this as a Western scholar. Here is Benegan, head of Cambridge's Geniza unit. Now, Solomon Schechter was, was um, from Eastern Europe. He was Jewish, you know. Um, but he was, he was regarded by Mosseri, who was a Egyptian, as a, being a Westerner, who had come and taken away the Jewish heritage of Egypt. And he had felt that this was unfair to the Jewish community of Egypt. They were losing their heritage. In one interview, Jack tells the Jewish Chronicle, it is somewhat unfortunate that these literary treasures were taken away from Egypt, where at least some of them should have been preserved. We did not at the time appreciate the nature of the hoard with which we so light-heartedly parted. Strangely enough, those who have benefited by the raid of our literary treasure house have not shown much alacrity in recognizing their obligations to Cairo, but I am hopeful that a more generous spirit might prevail. Just over 70 years ago, Egypt, Lebanon, and countries across the Levant and North Africa had strong Jewish communities. But today, in most Arab countries, very little of those communities remain, and in some places, they're gone entirely. Their heritage survives, whether it's in the buildings, in the prayer books, the texts, the documents, like those found in the Genizas. And the question of what to do with this heritage is a tricky one. So today, we're diving into that question through the story of Jacques Moussiri and the debates over where his collection should end up. I'm Hibba Fisher, and this is Carning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. Here's Nadine. In the years after Schechter left Egypt, we kind of see a moral conflict building up inside of Jack. 
You see it in the disappointment he felt for Schechter taking out documents he wanted to keep in Cairo in his museum as a celebration of his Jewish heritage. It also became a kind of obsession for him to see what and if Schechter might have left anything behind. Had he taken out everything from the Cairo Geniza? What other manuscripts might have remained? Luckily, in a series of fortunate events, the synagogue was rebuilt sometime in the 1890s, and during the rebuilding, the Geniza papers got shifted around into these new hiding places. Some were taken out and buried in the surrounding areas and in the nearby cemetery. But I think Mosserine was able to realize that when Schechter removed the material that was in that new holding space, he knew from the stories that there were more pieces buried around the synagogue area. So the the, the story is awfully complex. <laughs> and it really is a story of many Gnizot, many hiding places over time. And so what Masseri realizes is that that is the case. And um, starting in 1911, I believe it was, um, he starts to try and uncover these various hiding places. So he set out together with a scholar called Shapira. I think it was in between about 1909 and 1912. He um, made some trips to the synagogue and he discovered that Schechter had left quite um, an amount of material behind in the synagogue. He hadn't taken everything. And so he, he dug and took the manuscripts from all of those different places and he acquired a collection of about 7,000 manuscripts. Today, the manuscripts are valuable. Most of the material in Jack's collection covers a different time period from other Geneza collections. The bulk of the Geneza documents from elsewhere only cover the Middle Ages, whereas Jack's collection has fragments from the 18th and 19th century, the late Ottoman period. To the scholars who study the stuff, this is a big deal. Effectively, it gave them all this new information about how Jews lived in Egypt during that time period. So you, you'd have copies, you'd have what you would expect to find in a Geniza, which is copies of religious texts, Bibles, prayer books, liturgical texts. But it was also documents, letters written from um, businessmen, uh, documents pertaining to the, the community of Cairo in the Middle Ages, relating to the courts, relating to law, relating to religious law, relating to um, uh, their secular dealings, uh, their, their building documents, their divorce uh, documents, their marriage, <laughs> um, shopping lists, uh, book lists, um, <laughs> uh, little children's primers. But Jack didn't ever decide what he would do with the manuscripts. In 1934, around 20 years or so after he had discovered the remaining Geneza documents, he died at age 50. He died of an operation. His One of his organs was on the other side and they didn't catch that and so they operated on the wrong organ. And he died very young. At the time of his death, the manuscripts he had uncovered had remained in Cairo, where he intended them to stay. Which left behind a question for researchers, one that today nobody can answer. What do we do with the Mosseri collection? It's a tricky question to answer, because around the time he died, Jews were also gradually disappearing, many including the Mosseris leaving Egypt and other Arab countries because of a series of political events that turned them into unwitting pawns in larger regional conflicts. If you think about a long-term process, there are several points of inflection until what I would define as the breakpoint, 
This is Joel Bainan, professor of Middle East history. He also wrote a seminal book on the dispersion of Egyptian Jewry. In it, he wrote about a series of events that eventually led to most Jews leaving Egypt. From 1936 up to the 1948 war with Israel, Jews had started to leave Egypt, but not in masses. They continued to live in harmony inside their communities until Operation Susanna. The Israelis had plotted to blow up American and British property in Cairo and Alexandria, hoping to attribute it to the Egyptians. Young Egyptian Jews who had been... In a covert Israeli operation in 1954, Egyptian Jews were recruited to plant bombs in cinemas, libraries, and a train station. Nobody died in these attacks. The bombs were actually timed to detonate after closing time. It was a very amateurish operation. Everybody was caught. They were, of course, guilty as charged. But the Israeli government and American Jewish institutions said, oh, this is a Nazi-style show trial. And there was a great deal of hysteria about it. It was a huge hysteria, especially because two of the 10 people who were put on trial were sentenced to death by hanging. And six were given sentences between seven years to life. So that raised what I would say is a legitimate question for many people. Who, who are the Egyptian Are the, the Egyptian Jews? Are they Israeli agents or, or are they uh, loyal citizens of Egypt? And of course, the great majority of Egyptian Jews were uh, loyal citizens of Egypt and not Israeli agents. But how, how would you know? Oh, maybe this person I know, maybe he is an Israeli agent. The real turning point, however, came with the 1956 Suez War, when Britain, France and Israel attacked Egypt in response to Nasser's nationalization of the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal, lifeline of Europe in a dramatic sequence of events, became a cause of war when President Abdul Nasser announced its seizure by Egypt thrust Israeli troops struck down the Sinai Peninsula to within a few miles of the canal itself. Within days, Egyptian forces were completely routed. The stage was set for the next... There was anti-Jewish sentiment, of course. I mean, we were in a war with the state of Israel, the Jewish state. So, of course, that reflects on Egyptian Jews, um, especially after the uh, Operation Susanna. Jews were uh, dismissed from all their government positions. So the, no, no, there were no Jews in the civil service. The, in 1956, the first... Uh, measures of nationalization were undertaken. The, that's when the uh, economic organization was established before the big wave of nationalizations in 1960, 61, 62. So all those uh, economic institutions became publicly owned and uh, Jews were dismissed from their positions. Jews saw that the pressure was put on the Shikorel family, on the Moseri family to sell their businesses. According to the World Jewish Congress, between November 22, 1956 and March 15, 1957, around 14,000 Jews left Egypt, perhaps the largest number to leave Egypt at one time. Most of them left their assets behind, and almost half of them ended up in Israel as refugees, according to Benin. Anne's grandmother had actually left Egypt some years earlier, remarried, and moved to France. I don't know exactly if my grandmother herself went back to Egypt to try and get some of her assets. I, I guess she must have done that. But most of the assets, a lot of the assets were taken and nationalized. Out of everything she had lost, Anne's grandmother was able to keep the manuscripts that Jack found. My grandmother 
inherited them when my grandfather died. And she brought them with her to Paris. They were lots of very, you know, of fragments of pieces of paper, so to speak, and in delicate situation, um, condition, excuse me. She knew the importance of them. She knew the importance of the documents and other documents, including a Bible that she inherited, and they were safeguarded and brought to France. And although the manuscripts were kept out of sight in Anne's grandmother's kitchen for decades, the Bible known as the Musiri Bible, another treasured item she had held onto, was an important piece in the rediscovery of the manuscripts, because one scholar would come looking for it. So in 1970s, a scholar from the what is now known as the National Library of Israel, a scholar called Israel Adler, um, decided that he would contact the Mosseri family. He wasn't looking for the Mosseri Geniza collection at all. He was actually looking for a, one manuscript, one book, a Bible, called the, which was known as the Mosseri Bible. And Israel Adler was a scholar of Jewish music, and he was interested in this Bible because it had supposedly one of the earliest musical notations for the Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs in the Hebrew Bible. And... Um, he wanted to access this and publish it. But sadly, Adler did not find what he was looking for. The Bible had actually been stolen by the Nazis in 1941, taken out of a bank safe in Bordeaux in France. And it's never, it's never turned up. The, the, the family today are still looking for it. But he was told by um, the widow of Jack Masseri that she had a box that contained his papers, which she had not opened or she had not opened for a very long time. Probably the crate had been packed when they'd left Egypt. And so Adler um, immediately went out and bought a crowbar because it was a sort of big, you know, tea crate, chest kind of thing. And um, in supposedly in their kitchen, he crowbarred the crate open. And I, I imagine he was disappointed to not find the Mosseri Bible in it. But instead, he found all of these um, rolls and folds of manuscripts and so he had, he had rediscovered the, the Masseri Geniza collection in a, in a kitchen in, in the south of France. So they, they, they did withstand the years of being in the kitchen. Adler had quite a bit of work to do to convince her to let him microfilm them. And again, I'm not quite sure on the reluctance of that but whether whether it was a sense of just wanting to protect her husband's memory and not do anything you know given his whole feelings about the Geniza having left Cairo and what must have been a bitterness when he didn't get a response even to get copies of the materials um, maybe she was aware of that and maybe you know she just didn't like the idea of giving away the things that that had been so precious to him so Adler has a bit of convincing <laughs> to do. And there were tales and rumours of him wooing her with, with bunches of flowers and things. Again, no firm evidence of this. Jack's widow finally agreed to let Adler microfilm the collection, which is now an outdated method used to copy images or documents onto strips of film, but gave him a very limited amount of time to do so, exactly two weeks. Adler passed away in 2009, so we couldn't really speak to him about how he was able to do it. But I imagine, and everyone tells me, that it might have felt impossible to try to catalogue and microfilm 7,000 documents in poor condition in this very short space of time. 
Anyway, nevertheless, he managed it. And uh, a copy of the collection was on microfilm and placed at the Hebrew University. And then after that, they kind of disappeared again. After the microfilming, Jack's widow didn't want to part with the collection again. And they were supposedly kept in a bank vault in an unknown European country. It was after her death um, that uh, Jack's son, Claude Mosseri, who uh, venerated and adored his dad, wanted to do something about He realized the time had come that something had to be done with them. At the very least, they had to be conserved and protected. I tried to reach Claude for an interview, but because of his age and restrictions around COVID-19, it wasn't possible to speak to him. But Anne told me that after her grandmother's death, Claude and her father reached out to Cambridge because they had a good reputation in conserving other Ganesa documents in the past, and they started a negotiation process. In the end, the Moseris decided to loan their private collection to Cambridge for 20 years, at the end of which a committee made up of librarians, experts, and family members would decide what to do with it. There is definitely something terribly ironic in Moseri's collection being at Cambridge for those 20 years, especially now that we know that Jack did not want them to be taken out of Egypt in the first place, and they eventually ended up in the same place as Schechter's collection. Although the discoveries of both men were made with very different motivations, the fact that they started and ended up in the same place is something to think about. Anyway, when the collection arrived to Cambridge, the conservation process began immediately. We employed a professional conservator or a succession of them to work on the conservation. And, I mean, golly, it was slow. I was quite amazed at how long it takes. And the collection was in poor condition. For one, the collection arrived in cardboard boxes, which were picked up from an unknown location in England. They contained mangled pieces of parchment, mostly made of sheepskin and rag paper. So, yeah, part of the process was working with the conservation unit to see how we could um, rescue <laughs> these boxes of mangled <laughs> uh, pieces. Uh, and with regard to parchment... The process is uh, known as humidification. So if you give it a little bit of humidification, it will um, expand and you can then you can stretch it out. So this was this was some of the process and it was it was grueling because you it's a very gentle day by day working on the tiniest fragments and, and getting them to expand. Then there were things stuck together and that's a very gentle sort of pulling apart process. When we got the Masseri collection, you opened these boxes, you know, you smelt a rare combination of, of smells because um, half the collection, or probably less than half, is written on parchment, which is animal skin. So that's, that's sheep, mostly. And so when you open the boxes, you do get a whiff of kind of thousand-year-old sheep. And the paper, the paper, until the 15th century or so... Paper in Egypt was made, like most of the Islamic world, from rags. It was made from old clothes. It wasn't made from wood pulp. And so the paper itself can have quite a smell to it too. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite different from how you imagine paper to be. You know, paper you think is brittle and, and over time it will dry. And, but no, rag paper turns into sort of cotton wool. It, it's very floppy. And, and so seeing that in these boxes was quite exciting because that was the collection. It was much the same way as the Solomon Schechter must have seen it when he arrived in Egypt 100 years ago. Although the collection has been so far well kept at Cambridge, mostly in its manuscript vaults, the question of where the collection will finally and permanently be housed is still up in the air. 
Throughout negotiations that the Mosseri family had with Cambridge before gifting them the collection, where it would eventually go was a point of contention. The National Library of Israel kept coming up as the most likely candidate to take in the collection. And they were attempting, I think, to divine, you know, from a hundred years later, what would have been Jack Mosseri's wishes, because the collection in their eyes and in the Mosseri family's eyes belonged to Jack Mosseri. You know, he he gathered it up. He was a member of the Jewish community. He got the permission to do so. But that was in 1909 through to 1912, when the idea of a state of Israel was still, you know, a dream in European Zionist eyes. You know, there were Jews in the Holy Land in Palestine, but there was no Israel. So he couldn't at that time have... um, you know, expressly stated that he wanted to, it to go to the National Library of Israel because such a thing didn't exist. Um, and his view, as we understand it, and from his will, that he wanted it to go to a Jewish institution. And it's also the central question that got me interested in the story in the first place, because it is a thorny issue. Should the collection go back to Egypt, where they'd be neglected because they're a reminder of a difficult issue in our national history? Or should they go to Israel, where they'd be celebrated and preserved, but with the glaring recognition that effectively it is Egyptian cultural heritage being given to Israel? That's a tough sell. Now, I think, you know, what we what we would assume he meant by that, and certainly what his plan was when he was alive, was that would be a Jewish institution in Egypt, probably in Cairo, celebrating, you know, the Jewish cultural legacy. You know, all of his plans went out of the door. And then subsequently, with the the massive dwindling of the Jewish community in Egypt down to, you know, it's now a handful. In recent years, a lot of news has come out about the dwindling number of Jews in Egypt and the gradual loss of their heritage. In this Cairo synagogue, Magda Harun shows centuries-old Torah scrolls kept inside the Ark, a small piece of Egypt's vanishing Jewish heritage. Between 80,000 and 120,000 Jews lived in the country until the mid-20th century. Today, only 18 remain. When we are dying, we are drowning, we are going, we are finished. Our numbers used to be bigger. But because of the old age of our members, at least two or three of them die every year. This is where I used to come when I was a child. And I can still see myself running around and my grandfather standing in the first rows doing his prayers and me playing with other children. And now, no children, nothing. And with Egypt out of the question on account of there being virtually no Jewish community there, as well as the neglect of his Jewish heritage, not to mention the forced migration of the Syri and other Jewish families, Israel was high on the list. But Claude Jack's son had made one last condition for Israel to be considered a final resting place for the collection. He still felt that until such time as there was a lasting peace agreement between Israel and its neighbours, that he was happier if his collection stayed in Cambridge. It's just, uh, I don't know, like, it seems like it's hard to be, I mean, is it open to interpretation? Because I I doubt there will ever be lasting peace in Israel. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's very pessimistic. Um, (laughs) Well, yes, I think it is... it is open. Um, I think it's absolutely open to interpretation. I think that's And the why reason it, it is open to interpretation is because the agreement be. doesn't really seem to specify Israel or peace between it and its neighbours. 
Rather, it depends on there being a general sense of safety and security in the region, Israel included, for the collection to go there, as events in recent years have actually exposed the fragility of Middle Eastern heritage. temple built nearly 2,000 years ago is now a pile of rubble after the terror group ISIS rigged it with explosives and blew it up. From Syria to Iraq, ISIS has demolished precious artifacts and archaeological sites. But out of sight and off camera, what isn't being destroyed is being quietly sold in a black market that reaches Europe and even the U.S. To get a first-hand I occasionally, in misspoken, um, when talking about the future of the collection, I said at one point publicly that the collection will go to the to to the National Library of Israel, and I was told by the Masari family that no, this is this is not true because it relies on the committee making that decision. So it probably will go to the National Library of Israel, but it does rely on the committee being satisfied that the security situation in Israel is safe for it to go there. As this decision will be made in short of five years, I tried to press Anne to tell me where she thinks the collection will go, but didn't get too far. There's not much that I can say aside from the fact that it really depends as to when there will finally be long-standing peace in the Middle East, including Israel. It's a high bar to reach, and it comes with a ton of questions. How do you even define peace? But Anne says that this remains the position of the family. Those, there were decisions that were made way before I have gotten involved um, by older generations. And I think that the next generations will continue with that in mind. Peace in the Middle East. But in the case that there is no peace, the documents would stay in Cambridge. Is that right? I can't answer that. It's not within my, it's not, I, I, I have no, no right to answer that. But I will be positive in my hope that for the people of the Middle East and for people all over the world, that peace will finally at some time come. It's not a question of returning. One of the major concerns of the family, that they be placed somewhere where they would not be bombed, you know, and where the climate is or the conditions for restoration, for documentation, for study by interested academics. At the moment, it's, that's not something that I can really discuss any, any further. That's another generation that has to deal with that issue. But already at Cambridge, getting more funding for the collection is tied to that very question. Where will the collection go and which heritage does it actually belong to? When we got the collection, the family generously um, made a uh, they made a generous donation to support the work on the collection, the conservation. Um, but uh, we did we did get through that money some years ago, and uh, although I've managed to raise money from from different sources to support the conservation of the collection, we we still have about just under half of the collection to do. And one of the issues has been, although we've over the years we've been successful in raising money to look after the manuscripts of the Kaganiza, it's been much harder with the Mosseri collection 
And one of the specific reasons why it's so hard to get funding is that donors and conservation bodies realize that the collection will not remain at Cambridge, and so do not consider it part of UK heritage. We're not the owners of the collection, and that's caused something of an issue. In that Because it's only on loan to us, technically, um, that means there are some sources of funding that we can't use because we can't guarantee where the collection will be in the future. And many of these funds rely on the collection being a, a part of UK's national heritage. So I think that, that generally keeps me awake at night and will continue to do so until it, it finds you know, a home somewhere permanently. And until the fate of the Masiri collection is determined, the question of which tradition or heritage it should belong to will keep coming up. Is it part of British heritage, Israeli or Egyptian? You know, in this day and age and this, this feeling that you know, Britain in particular has exploited its imperial heritage and it shouldn't do that anymore. I think there was probably a real feeling that it, it, it needs to go back to the Middle East in some way. And, you know, the position of Israel in the Middle East is, is obviously a contentious one. And the idea of returning the manuscripts to, to Egypt would be difficult. While spending months reporting on the story, I too kind of became obsessed with the idea of placing the documents somewhere. I found myself imagining how the Musiris lived in Egypt, their lavish home now converted into an embassy where they held garden parties and hosted musicians from all over the world. The love Jack shared with his wife, how he went trekking and digging through the Bassettine Cemetery looking for the documents. Egypt was literally where all these memories were formed, but Egypt was also where these memories dissipated. When people ask me where I'm from, it's always a tricky question because where, where am I from um, in terms of my mother's side, my father's side, which, which century? But I know that the family has strong ties to Egypt. I know that my grandmother wanted to have her ashes or some of her ashes buried there. I think Egypt is a very different country now than it was at the time when my grandparents lived there. I mean, the family itself was thrown out of Egypt, although, you know, Jack Masseri was proud as an Egyptian Jew. He died before, you know, the worst period for the Egyptian Jewish community when, when essentially they had to leave the country. This black hole in Egyptian history has placed a huge burden on our Jewish heritage and how the many generations that came after that came to look upon that history. But I also have to admit my bias here. I struggle with the idea that a part of what was once my heritage as an Egyptian would go to Israel, a country Arabs have been at war for for decades, morally and emotionally, if not diplomatically, at least now. Some part of me felt angry. There's been this whole revolution in the way that we view our collections when we look at them, and we look at them purely now from a kind of colonial viewpoint, you know, why do we have this collection? Is it right we have this collection? Is there something we can do to make, um, you know, to make this collection more available to the people who produced it, who, who, who might be interested in it? You know, it is very touchy and uh, it, it's pretty reasonable for uh, Egyptians to be annoyed about this and uh, even to demand that these things be uh, restored, uh, returned to Egypt. The Geniza documents fall in a somewhat different category. They are the private property of the Jewish community. 
the Egyptian state has no claim to those documents. It didn't create those documents. It did nothing to preserve those documents for as long as they were there. Um, the documents were discovered by Jews. Although there are many points of view on this, I came to realize that maybe the Mosiri collection does not need to be labeled as part of any one heritage. As Rebecca says, with its availability online in the unforeseeable future, there is something for everyone. I think Mosseri's legacy is strong and it's getting new legs, as it were. <laughs> and, and that's so exciting. I think he would have loved that. You know, his idea of sort of celebrating Cairo history and Cairo Jewish history in Cairo is 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 wonderful and a lesson to be learned. I mean, it's such a fascinating story and and there were wrongs and there were rights, but in the end thanks to technology and the internet we have the ability now to share these things around the world and I think Egypt should be proud of that. Um even if it didn't stay in Egypt, you know, this this wonderful Egyptian heritage is now fully online and so much scholarship is coming out of it. Even if we physically give the manuscripts to another institution, if it goes to the National Library of Israel or wherever, we will still have the digital collection which we have created and, you know, those digital digital objects, which will be the way that 99% of all future scholarship on the collection is conducted will be on the digital objects, not on the manuscripts themselves. And it's better for the manuscript that that is the case because manuscripts, you know, they've survived a thousand years mostly by people not fiddling with them and breathing on them and looking at them and turning their pages. This is something that everyone can take an interest in because this is, this was a collection that wasn't a collection that was put together by, you know, elites. <laughs> this was a collection of the ordinary man and woman uh, in Cairo, the accidental fragments of their life um, that now tell us so much, um, speak to us so strongly. As I look on my father's side of the family, I think it is a very rich heritage. It is uh, one of a lot of travels. It is one of a lot of culture, one that is helpful to others, be it from my father's as a person or my grandfather having an open heart and an open mind and living and respect for peace. I think that that search for peace um, is something that has impregnated our lives because we have gone around the Mediterranean over centuries I mean, you don't throw something like that away. If you know what it is, you don't throw it away. This episode of Kerning Cultures is produced by the Kerning Cultures Network, which means we're part of a bigger network. We actually have eight shows uh, in Arabic and in English that are all amazing. And we encourage you to check them out at kerningcultures.com. Today's episode was produced by Nadine Shekir with editorial support from Zainab Lut, Alex Atak, and Shraddha Joshi, Zaina Duidar, and Abd Amr. Fact-checking by Alex Atak and sound design by Mohamed Khizat. Special and well-deserved thanks to Rebecca Jefferson, Ben Althwaite, Anne Musiri Murleo, and John Bainan for speaking to me for this story. Before you go, uh, a quick ask. If you liked this episode, please share it on social and with your friends. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>